of distance separating us in real time. It's that's kind of mind-boggling. It's uh, I mean, we take it for granted that it's normal now, but it's not very. It's not normal, really. Um, yeah. it's, it's, and I take it as the probably the only bright side of COVID that it opened our minds, you know, our eyes that there are other things to be done. Use technology, you know, in a positive way. So before, uh, as a coordinator of the Arabic studies program, like we invite guest speakers and it's always, you know, you have to fly them in, you know, oh, goodness. they should yeah. be in person, oh, all the goodness. budget, the expenses, they're free, they're not free. Now I can ask people to Zoom to my classroom. I know, it's amazing. So I had this, um, you know, I, it occurred to me a while ago, and we're live by the way, but uh, I'll, I'll introduce you shortly. But, um, no, it occurred to me a few years ago that, you know, why, why can't we, instead of spending thousands of dollars in these in-person conferences, yes. just so five people can listen to my paper, right? Like, why can't we do this stuff online? Like, I, I mean, it seemed like a no-brainer to me. And I, I, I suggested, suggested this to a few friends and academic friends. They're like, no, no, you know, it's, you know, people like the, the in-person thing. And, but, you know, it's just... Uh, doesn't make any sense. And the online model is just, um, it's somewhat interesting, I think. I mean, we should never do away with the in-person contact ultimately, but yeah, to, to yeah. facilitate the, you know, if it is truly about sharing knowledge, right? Um, the great thing about doing stuff online is potentially, I mean, the entire world could potentially be exposed to, to, to one's ideas. And you can do more. So instead of inviting one guest speaker, one event a year, right? I can, I'm planning now for, for a course, Global Islam Current Debates, where every class someone will be Zooming from around the globe will be Zooming to my classroom. I mean, my, my, my students are lucky. You know, they, they don't need to listen just to one professor, you know? We get this tendency sometimes to repeat what we say and all of that. They will get to see people, what people believe in from all around the globe. And sometimes, you know, it's more even uh, uh, more realistic because we're going to have people with different and sometimes the opposite points of view defending their views all in our classroom. So, you know, a lot of opportunities. Um, as I said, it's, it's probably the only bright side we had from, uh, from COVID. And I'm talking to you now, you know? <laughs> well, no, exactly. Well, it's amazing. So, um, you know, uh, what I'll do is I'll uh, quickly introduce uh, you, Professor Abla Hassan. Um, our wonderful guest today is uh, Abla Hassan, who is Associate Professor of, uh, of Practice of Arabic Language and Culture. Uh, she holds a PhD in the Philosophy of Language from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Uh, and um, holds also an MA in philosophy as a Fulbright grantee from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Um, Professor uh, Hassan is a native speaker of Arabic. She teaches Arabic language and culture and is the program's undergraduate advisor and coordinator. Her teaching and research focus is on Quranic studies, Islamic feminism, women and gender studies and Arabic studies. And um, her, Professor Hassan's most recent book, um, published by Lexington, is called Decoding the Egalitarianism of the Quran, uh, Retrieving Lost Voices on Gender. Um, so if we uh, 
may start, uh, Professor Hassan, by um, talking a little bit um, about uh, I mean, the very problematic that that's set up in the title itself, egalitarianism in the Quran. So the assumption that I guess one is making is um, the Quran perhaps suggests with a superficial reading, a non-egalitarian sort of ethics. So could you speak a little bit to that, how you address that problematic? Right. Um, thank you for, 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 you know, for the conversation and for inviting me. Um, and, and, and yes, from the title, the bigger question I would say of the book was uh, to go back to the Quran, to uh, understand what is the Quran and what does the Quran say about women related issues, questions related to gender egalitarianism, right? And with the questions, I mean two sets, two different sets of questions. Uh, questions from inside the faith, uh, question, pending questions, I would say, and the questions from the curious outsider. And probably here I'm speaking from my experience as a veiled Muslim woman, I've been living in the US for the last four, almost 14 years. So a lot of like, like I would say 80% uh, like of questions when I teach about Islam, when I am involved in interfaith uh, work uh, is about women, is about women all the time. And for, for a good reason, we have a lot of pending questions. And uh, it's, not, it's not only questions from outsiders, they have the right to know about, you know, the real status of women in the Quran. It's, it's, it's theological questions per se, I would say. Because here's the bigger question, is God biased or is he just, right? Because there is no way we can keep uh, recycling the old answers to get anything new from them. Old answers, and I mean by that traditional answers, even from within or from inside the faith, unfortunately, I would say to be very open about it, stopped working a long time ago. And the question is, where should we go to find answers then, right? Are women and men equal? Do we have gender-based superiority, which is called kiwama, right? What about domestic violence, right? Uh, is it seriously the case that men are advised to correct their wives by appealing to, to beating them, to physical abuse and psychological abuse? Many attempts you know, were offered to deal with all of that. What about uh, polygamy and drowning women in second marriages? Um, what about women's right to public authority positions? What about minor marriage? Uh, what about our cultural practices that we changed uh, uh, into religion and we started preaching for them as, as religion? Should we go back to the Quran for these answers or is it an obsolete old book that was revealed for its time and people? And it's problematic because we can't go with that route because according to the Islamic claim, which is a very brave claim, and I would say all Islamic schools believe in that, Islam is a universal religion. Islam is, 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 a, is a good religion, fit for the needs of all people, all times, all cultures, because it's general enough to do all of that, right? And from my reading, 
that and, and my research that I provide uh, in this book and in, in papers and in presentations like this, I find answers in the Quran. I find answers in the Quran. It's just having an open mind and approach, a new approach sometimes, and go to the language, um, study the language very carefully, very carefully. Many answers we take for granted that, yes, this is the answer because someone said that and we have support from someone said that. And I mean by that, Salaf, right? The ancestors, like the, 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 the golden times. But many of these answers can't work for our times. The, uh, the approach I adopt is because you have to adopt a methodology at the end of the day. You can't keep jumping between methodologies and, and claim that everything is working. My approach is uh, based on tafsir al-Quran bil-Quran, using the Quran to interpret the Quran. And I, I don't take it as an exclusive approach to dealing with these problems, but I take it as uh, maybe a methodology that adds to others, myth others methodologies and complements them. And when you do something, Hassan, and you find results, you find answers. So the question is, is why not? And this is not really something that new. We know in the history of exegesis of Islamic exegesis and tafsir, the ulum of tafsir, the sciences of tafsir, we had two main schools. We had a tafsir bil ma'thur school and a tafsir bil ra'i school. Tafsir bil ma'thur, which depends on heritage based interpretation of the Quran, and the tafsir bil ra'i, which is uh, intellectual analysis, your own opinion based. And they were never, you know, on the same page. There was always that competition between the two schools. A tafsir bil Quran, using the Quran to decode the Quran, I take it as a safe route because. Uh, I can claim to be more objective in my answers. Let me try to take, for example, the Quranic word as a key to understand the, that, this, that same term, that same word when it occurs, when it takes place in the Quran. And from uh, my attempt to deal, I would say the, the top most controversial questions concerning women issues in the Quran, I find answers within the Quran, within the Quran itself. And maybe we can go over some examples from problematic issues. And, and we have a lot of them, unfortunately, when it comes to, to uh, uh, women's uh, issues in Islam. Uh, you're muted, Hassan. There we go. Sorry about that. Uh, so before maybe we go into specific examples, uh, it occurs to me, um, this is not my area of expertise, but the, 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 the little that uh, I know and uh, have been exposed to, um, I believe it was uh, Amina Wadud, uh, I remember hearing that she said, based on her uh, studies of the Quran, that she had to come to the very painful conclusion that the that the Quran is patriarchal, that God is patriarchal, and and what what would your response be to 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 that uh, to to Amina Wadud's position? Uh, you can't you can't really uh, you know do any feminist reading of the Quran without starting with with Amina Wadud, right? With with the uh, the great Professor Amina Wadud. I'm a big fan of Amina Wadud. 
Uh, now, patriarchy, um, I see patriarchy in the way the religion was processed. I don't see patriarchy in the text itself because this will be a huge theological dilemma, I would say. Uh, if, if, if God, uh, uh, you know, is God in the, in the meaning we understand by God, at least in the monotheistic tradition, in the Abrahamic tradition, God should be fair, just, and good to everyone. And this is what the text says. The text is gender egalitarianism. The text is uh, humanitarian, but processing the text deviated away from that. I don't want to be misunderstood as scandalizing what medieval scholars did, right? They did the best according to their time. And there is a way that we as human beings, it's not a secret, we control or people in power, let's say, control production, including intellectual production. So the arguments were understood in a way that will give advantage to the elite, including the male elite. It's natural outcome of having a complete absence of female voices, right? Uh, give me names of Mufassirat of the Quran. I know that a lot of hadith goes back to Aisha, the wife of the prophet, but if we just try to count the number of who processed, who, who was in control, in charge of jurisprudence, tafsir, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the everyday fatwa, I would say the female voices were, were absent. And the question is, were women silent or were they silenced by, by others? And this is not exclusive, you know, unique to women. Anyone in power would fund, you know, maybe it's until today, right? You need some kind of support to your views to be, to be out there, right? We speak all the time about the consensus of the, of the uh, nation, ijma. What do we mean by ijma? Ijma, I would take it as like an imaginary notion. There is no way you can have all, even let's take a globally or, or the, the, you know, uh, the most important conference on religious studies. You can't really claim that all people agreed on the same opinion. There are other voices marginalized maybe, silenced maybe. Uh, maybe people were not that comfortable with saying their views. We, we had in a short conversation before we started like being on, on live, uh, you know, the, that gap between academia and between the public, between having views and debating these views between each other as scholars and between reaching audience. And therefore many times it's, you know, it's the platform you use to, to, for, for your views to reach out to the audience. It's not only the ideas or the views themselves or the way you put them. Uh, sometimes it's the freedom of speech, it's having the right to have a voice in the first place. So a lot of issues, I don't see any of these issues really essentially embodied in the religious text. And I can speak for the Quran because my methodology depends on, it's a hermeneutical approach to the Quran. So I start from the Arabic language. I can go back to really rethinking the Arabic language, but I can uh, extend the argument to say that all religious texts are gender egalitarian and humanitarian. 
Now, I don't like to step on others' territories. I leave, you know, when it comes to biblical studies to experts in biblical studies, but I would highly doubt that you can see misogyny essentially in any religious text, soundly, you know, in any religious text. It's our interpretation of the text per se. It's not, it's not the text. It's because here's the thing. I'm gonna speak about the Quran. According to the Islamic belief, Muslims believe that the Quran was revealed literally by the angel Gabriel to Prophet Muhammad. Prophet Muhammad didn't really think things in his mind and put them uh, or, or narrate them to his followers. Uh, Prophet Muhammad was not the author of the Quran. He was a messenger. He conveyed a message and the message is from God. And to, uh, to get a message from God with the flaws, this is a theological problem. And therefore a question about whether Quran is gender egalitarian or not is a question about God himself because this is a book, uh, you know, executes the very loose way of putting it, authored by God himself or revealed by God himself. It's not the product of a prophet who authored things uh, 14 centuries ago. And again, with the claim that I just mentioned that the, the Quranic message, the Islam, Islamic message, although I, I, I make distinction between both now, uh, is, is uh, in itself is good enough to move with the humanity until the end of all times, because it's general enough to allow that. When, when we see sexist norms, misogynist norms, when we see things that don't add up, uh, uh, then the problem is in our interpretation. It's not in the text itself. If we just give the text a second chance, just, you know, read it carefully, leave aside all the readings, leave aside all the instruction because we go to schools, to madrasas, right? To uh, theological institutions that many times try to push us into, this is the way you do this. You don't come up with an opinion if not supported by this imam saying that or that professor saying that. So you can't come really up with something new. But I would say uh, if, if, if those uh, imams who we take them as idols were alive today, they were blessed, you know, rethinking the Quran and following in their, you know, in their, in their uh, profession and doing what they did because this is really their legacy. And I add to that, Hassan, the simple fact that from reading the Quran, the Quran is a book that uh, uh, recommends encourages you or the reader to reflect tafakkur, to rethink, to, and, and tafakkur comes from, uh, 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 it, it's exaggeration, which means you think, you rethink, you come back to it, you revisit the text times and times again. No wonder because every generation need to find their needs there. So I can't really go back to someone who said something, an opinion, which was valuable at their time, 14 centuries ago, quote that opinion and apply it to my time. It's not the intention of the Quran itself. And therefore the, the Quran speaks a very, very general language with no uh, specific recommendations or rulings of any kind. 
uh, I, I can, uh, I, I, I remember I tried so many times to count how many times the Quran in a way or another uh, encourages thinking and tafakkur. Because I like sometimes to do things myself, you know, people with intellect, reflect or shaming people who don't reflect or shaming people who just say things that we believe in what our ancestors believe, things like that. Literally, Hassan, I, I keep losing the count. So if you read a book, if I hand you a book, and um, please excuse the, the shallow here uh, analogy. And this book says, for example, a book on, 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 on healthy lifestyle. Let's say the book says, drink water, drink water, drink water, right? And if you give me back the book without reaching the conclusion that you need to drink more water, or without at least saying that this book re recommends drinking water, you didn't understand anything of that book. Unfortunately, this is the, the case with traditional processing of the Quran. People are encouraged to read the Quran. People, you know, Ramadan time, people even brag about how many times they were able to do khitma uh, uh, or, or, or finish reading the Quran. But unfortunately, and I'm very sad to say that, very few would recommend, would, would consider, what did I learn from reading the Quran? What's the new thing that I'm, 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 I'm learning today from reading it for the second time, for the third time, for the fourth time, and so on. So there's a huge responsibility. And I don't mean by that that all of us should be scholars and go and interpret the Quran, but as a personal, personal guidance for your faith, there is something you need to get out of it. And it's a personal responsibility as well. If you need to have it, as a lived experience in your life. If you just want to depend on others' opinions, good luck with that. People, you know, uh, do that, but there's no, I would say, uh, there's no excuse because at the end of the day, there are so many personal challenges, many decisions you need to take, to take in life. And even when you choose not to uh, uh, decide, you will be choosing or, or you, you know, we're choosing all the time. When we say something, we choose to say it. When we don't say something, we choose not to say it. When we have our personal uh, individual opinion, we choose to go that route. When we take others' opinions, there are so many opinions. Why did you pick that imam or that school or that doctrine? Because you're choosing again. So no one can set them free from themselves free from the responsibility of rethinking the Quran and, uh, you know, just do the homework, read the Quran for yourself and see the impact of, of it on, on your life. In my case, uh, uh, a lot of the questions I got through my career is related to uh, women's status in Islam. And to be honest in answering the questions, I had to uh, answer those questions for myself first. So I had to go into this journey of digging into the Quran. Uh, and it's not something unique to me so many brave voices are, are doing that now in the field. So many respectful colleagues are doing that. This is so, so incredible. Thank you so much. Um, uh, so much to, uh, to unpack there. I mean, I'm not going to spend too much time unpacking these things myself, but uh, one of the things you mentioned, and this is a kind of a very, uh, very Foucauldian insight, right? That the, the, the nature of knowledge production, that knowledge uh, is always 
inevitably uh, uh, more often than not tied with tied in with power. So to your point about um, how the consensus was reached, the so-called consensus, I mean, it's not separate from, from how power operated, uh, operates, has operated through history and continues to operate till, till now. Um, it's just an inevitable part of that process. Um, Talal Assad talks about this um, without using a Foucauldian lens, but in his kind of very famous and old essay at this point, which looks at Islam as a discursive tradition, he he looks at, he analyzes how orthodoxy is established and, and uh, the, the nature in which it's always inevitably tied in with power. And then with, with time, very often what happens is what was maybe historically at one point the orthodox position, uh, which became the orthodox position through, um, you know, through its kind of imposition, uh, then the, 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 there comes about a shift just in the nature of, of things. But then a new orthodoxy is established, and mm -hmm. then that new orthodoxy is implemented through processes of power. So the question then becomes, to, to your point, um, Professor Hassan, is um, uh, what, which voices are being left out as orthodoxy kind of crystallizes and, and, and solidifies, right, in, in each sort of period? Orthodoxy, you know, in, in quotation marks, because uh, let's say a Sunni loosely said understood a Sunni orthodoxy is different from a Shi'i orthodoxy, which is different from, you know, uh, uh, other things, uh, other types of orthodoxies, um, and you know what gets classed as heterodox, right, is also a very much uh, 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 an exercise in power, right? So, um, uh, you know. An example, a very powerful, I think, example of uh, of this, say, in the Sufi context, is that of uh, you know Sheikh Akbar ibn, ibn Arabi, who who gets classed as heterodox in his own time, right, in his own lifetime, and he's persecuted and and so forth, and uh, who's of course buried in Damascus himself, and in this incredibly sort of uh, uh, in, uh, powerful luminary uh, sort of figure thinker who who impacts islamic uh, thought irrevocably in, in particular sort of islamic metaphysics ir irrevocably um but then uh, i mean he, he holds this very bizarre distinction of both being considered sheikh al-akbar by, by many and by uh, many others as being considered like the greatest sort of uh, heretic right so which is a very bizarre phenomenon but the, the point i guess uh, i mean to, to your point is um, how does orthodoxy come about? How are, uh, when orthodoxy is kind of solidified, who, which are the voices that, that are marginalized? Where are the women voices? Absolutely, in, in Islamic history. I mean, women throughout history have represented more or less 50% of the human population, not least the, the Muslim human population. Why are there not Muslim, more women voices? So if, if men, which has been the case primarily, and men are speaking and writing and, and sort of giving their pronouncements on different things to much of uh, Muslim history, then uh, to what extent realistically can these men, even if they're you know, the most pious and caring and compassionate human beings, realistically, to what extent, to what extent can they really be speaking with, um, uh, 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 what's the word? Not authenticity, but... Uh, like, how can we really take the voices seriously when it comes to speaking just on women's issues, right? Exactly. I mean, 
and and women's voices are, are so important throughout human history and i strongly believe more so perhaps today than ever before only because there's this hyper masculinization of, of of human society and, and the sort of the feminine voice which isn't only coming from women or doesn't only come from women but I think it comes significantly from and through women is so important. So, so your corrective is, is a really, really important corrective. And um, um, I wanted to ask you um, about what one of the, the chapters in your book where, where you look at, um, and, I, and you'll sort of uh, inform me some more, but I remember reading some years ago in um, uh, one of Frith uh, Sean's uh, short uh, essays, on the prophethood of Mary, you know, mm. how, how historically many scholars considered her to be a prophet. Uh, not, uh, not all of them, this is not a universal position, but many did, and which is a remarkable, uh, I think, corrective and, and perspective to hold because very often the mainstream understanding is, oh, well, only men can be prophets because, you know, men, whatever, they don't menstruate or some, you know, terrible argument like that. Uh, but whereas, I mean, and please, you know, speak a little bit to this incredibly important figure in human history as such, not yeah. least, uh, uh, in the Islamic tradition, but of course in, in Christianity. I mean, she's this, uh, Maryam al-Islam is uh, this incredibly luminous, pious, powerful figure through mm. whom, of course, uh, the Prophet Jesus from the Islamic point of view, Christ from... Christian point of view comes into the world. So it's not a small thing. It's she's right, right. right. A little bit too, too. Yeah, and, and maybe Hassan, it's sufficient to add that uh the only woman mentioned in name of the Quran is Mary, Maryam, the mother of Jesus. And we know from uh the Quran style that very few people are, are mentioned, very few of them are mentioned in name. And not only she mentioned by name, she she, we have a full chapter devoted for, for Mary, chapter 19, and to her story. Uh, the, the question uh, whether we can find an, a Quranic argument for uh, the prophethood of Mary uh, or not is a big question when it comes to gender egalitarianism because if women can be prophets just like men, it means there is nothing in nature, that there is nothing in, in their nature uh, that prevents them from being uh, perfect or complete. According to the Islamic tradition, uh, all prophets are the best role models for humanity. Uh, they're infallible. They're perfect in their acts. They're still human beings. We're not speaking about any divinity involved there, but you can take them as a role model. So excluding women from that, will, and which, which happened in the, in the Islamic tradition, uh, was for excuses like she, she can't be strong enough, she can't be um, uh, in control, in charge, uh, and it's such a huge responsibility. And many times because she's not pure enough, she's not pure enough, women are not pure enough to, for, for that uh, high rank. And uh, out of all the scholars, I give credit to Ibn Hazm al-Andalusi, who argued that not only Mary, but the mother of Musa, Musa, Moses, and the mother of Isaac as well, they were prophets. Because what would count, logically speaking, for someone to be a prophet, 
other than getting uh, a divine communication uh, through angels or even without angels. And Ibn Hazm al-Andalusi argued that those women had, had that in their lives. So why not to argue for them as prophets? Al-Qurtubi had a similar opinion, but the consensus I would say of everyone else was that women can't be prophets. And there is a difference I, I'd like to, to make here between being a, a prophet, Nabi, and being a messenger, Rasul. So uh, those women are prophets in the meaning that they received revelation. Uh, whether they're messengers or not, this is a different point, which is you're sent to your people in a mission. Uh, maybe the time, the norms of the time didn't allow, allow for that. Uh, when it comes to, to Mary's prophethood, I find in addition to the logical evidence that she was a prophet, uh, I found from analyzing one particular verse that maybe uh, I, I shared that in my book as well that I can share with you quickly uh, uh, from the repetition and from rethinking the repetition in one verse, uh, some clues to add to what I call the logical evidence for Mary's prophethood, which means we can say that Mary is a prophet according to the Quran because of linguistic evidence and because of the logical evidence. Uh, and the verse is uh, in chapter 3, 42, 43. I'm going to uh, just this one maybe uh, read quickly. And mention when the angel said, O Mary, indeed Allah has chosen you and purified you and chosen you uh, above the women of the worlds. And the bigger question is about the repetition in the Quranic language for the expression has it chosen you. Let's notice it's chosen you and purified you and chosen you, it's not then. So we don't have any chronological order. We have two types of a choosing Mary. And I'm not the first one uh, who, you know, who, who thought there's something about this repetition. A lot of exegetes out there tried to, to rethink it, but with no one, saying that it can lead to an argument in favor of Mary's prophethood for a reason, because they excluded that even as an option. So even before starting the analysis, they, they didn't go with that route because it, it can't be, right? So the question is, why to repeat has it chosen you? A repetition is not something for no meaning is not something or for no reason or for no sound reason, is not something we should allow ourselves to conclude to in a miraculous language, in a perfect language, like the language of the Quran. Muslims argue for the Quran as the perfect, you know, way or a style of writing. Even the computer, when we write something and, you know, it's repeated, the computer rejects the, the repetition for no reason. So why to accept here the repetition for no reason? Some exegetes try things like, okay, there is a repetition. And here maybe I can quote a Sha'rawi, uh, the, the famous Egyptian uh, uh, exegete and al-Mufassir. Uh, he said, has it chosen you the first time it was mentioned? Uh, it is something Mary shares with others. Has it chosen you above the women of the worlds? The second time it's mentioned, it's exclusive to Mary, right? Because Mary is the only woman, the only woman who's gonna conceive without a male partner. She's the best of all women, 
hands down, all times, all places. But now Sha'arawi acknowledges that the first type of choosing Mary is something she shares with others. And who are those others? Who are the chosen people? Prophets. But he couldn't really go with that conclusion. Again, because it's, you know, it's out of discussion. Women can't be prophets. Others tried to say that the first time she was chosen, maybe earlier in her lifetime, the second type of choosing her later in her lifetime. Again, I don't have summa in Arabic. I don't have the conjunction then. I have wa, which means and. So to be a little bit more careful with dealing with the language itself, there is no way other than saying, this is, this is my understanding of it, other than saying that Mary was chosen not only once, she was chosen twice. First, she was chosen the same way like all other prophets are chosen. She's not superior to any male prophet. She's not inferior than any male prophet. Then the second time, and this is loose in the Quran, Allah has chosen you not above anyone, right? It's, she's chosen the same way everyone are chosen and purified you and chosen you above the women of the walls. Now we can say from the second time, uh, the, 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 the expression is mentioned, Mary is the best of all women. She's the best of all women, all times, all places, according to the Quran. Uh, something also deserves to be noticed, the purification, right? And the purified you. The purification comes second to the first way she was chosen to enable her to conceive in a divine way with no male partner and to be the mother of Jesus, which is a miracle, right? She, in other words, what I want to say, Mary was not purified to be able to be a prophet because that should have taken place before the first time she was chosen. She was Equally, you know, she was she was initially, I would say, uh, qualified to become a prophet, like every and all male prophets, without anything, without any purification needed for her nature as a woman to be able to be in that high rank. She she needed purification, and I have no idea what that kind of divine uh, purification is to be able to conceive uh, of Jesus with no male partner, which is a divine way that we can say very little about. We should be humble at some times and say only things we can understand. And this is one of these things. So this is uh, the what I call the linguistic evidence we can find in the Quran for the prophethood of Mary. And we can easily add to that the logical evidence for Mary as a prophet. Because what, what makes someone qualified to, to be a prophet? It's communication with angels. We have in the Quran a documentation of angels bringing Mary the good tidings that she's gonna conceive of, of uh, Jesus with no male partner and he's gonna be named after her. So she had a communication herself with angels and she communicated with, guess who? With angel Gabriel himself the angel of revelation. So if she communicated with angel Gabriel and he's the angel of revelation who communicated according to the tradition with Muhammad, so why not to say she's a prophet herself? Finally, we can add to that witnessing miracles in her own life. 
Because also we know that what makes someone a prophet is working miracles and witnessing miracles. We know from the Quran that uh, in her early life, every time Zechariah entered the place where she was, uh, uh, I, she used to isolate herself for worship, there was something about a food, food provided for Mary in a mysterious way, right? Some exegesis, she didn't have to go seek food or do something, right? She was provided food. And we know that because in the Quran, Zechariah asked, Anna min anna leki, leki hada, or something like that. He, he asked with surprise, right? Where did you get this food from? Some exegests even say, and I don't like to add details when we don't have Quranic support for that, but I'm going to say it anyway, that she was provided the fruit of winter during summer season, fruit of summer during winter seasons, things, miraculous things like that. By, but I take the miracle, not what she was provided, but how she was provided. You're in isolation and you're provided food probably by angels themselves. Zechariah is surprised. He's the one who's providing for her food. He goes to check on her and she's already good. She's only the already provided food. Uh, so this is a miracle she witnessed in her life as well. And the bigger question is, if we have linguistic evidence for Mary as a chosen human being, I would say, in a gender egalitarian tune, and uh, if we have proofs that, uh, Quranic proofs that she communicated with angels, she had a dialogue with angels, she had a dialogue with angel Gabriel himself, the angel of revelation, and she had her own miracles. So why not to argue for Mary as a prophet equal to, a, to all male prophets? Uh, thank you again. Uh, a long answer to your question, Hassan. No, no, it's perfect. No, no, it's because it's a very important topic. And um, to your last point, I mean, uh, the way you phrase it, why, why not? Now, why why not <laughs> accept her as a prophet? Like, I mean, to my mind, the only reason why people would be against uh, accepting uh, the prophethood of, of the blessed from a Christian point of view, the, the blessed, even in the Islamic context, Mary is 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 a patriarchal attitude. That's the only reason that I can think of, really. If we really boil it down, yeah, women are just not as good as men. They're just not the equivalent of men. Therefore, they can't be prophets. Sorry, they're kind of lesser, the lesser human beings. It's, I mean, it's not even an option. And it, you know, I don't see patriarchy only as the only way of arresting the, the, the text. The text can be arrested by anyone who is in power for their own agendas. For example, for political agendas. The times during the times where the Islamic empire was expanding. Do you think people were in favor or let's say people in power would encourage uh, exegetes who will come with uh, humanitarian messages and ending slavery messages and freedom of religion messages and all people are equal and you can't really, uh, you know, use religion as a way to support the expanding empire. So there are so many ways that people in power can use their power to uh, force their own interpretations or at least to support, to fund 
their, to encourage their own interpretations. And this will bring us, uh, Hassan, to another challenge. Are we doing the same now, right? Because maybe, maybe I'm trying as a feminist Muslim uh, uh, scholar, I'm trying to replace patriarchal interpretations by feminist interpretations. Why not, right? Maybe we're trying to, since now we live in open societies, interfaith societies, we have colleagues from other faith or no faith that we love and we respect. Maybe we want to, uh, to replace the strict message, religious message by freedom of religion message, right? And it's, it's a big question that we need to ask ourselves and we, we need to be honest with ourselves. And I see there is no way, at least, you know, my humble attempt to do that, of setting myself free from myself without going back to the text. If I allow the text to speak for itself and I, I mute my voice, I mute my desires, uh, I don't want to replace patriarchy or male-centered interpretations by female-centered interpretations, right? I don't want to be involved in doing that. And who knows, maybe this is a human tendency. Maybe all of us can be motivated in a point or another to do that. And therefore- I think this is an important, sorry to interrupt, but I think this is an important point that you raise yeah. uh, because say, so, um, from a certain perspective, let's say a neo-traditionalist perspective or what have you, uh, say neo-traditionalists would say, oh, well, you're just, I mean, this kind of perspective that you're presenting is just uh, part of the liberal Western agenda. Here we go again. You know, this is how, this is how they undermine the religion. They kind of, you know, so, um, so, so your point is, is a very important one, which is, uh, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying, you're not interested in, in, in replacing a patriarchal interpretation by a feminist interpretation per se, but like allowing the text to, 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 to speak and, and being very cognizant of, the, of our own situatedness, our own lenses, because I mean, the Quran, uh, uh, um, as far as our experience of the Quran uh, as a living text, it is is a living text because we live through it, right? We interpret uh, it depending on on where we're coming from, inevitably, right? And and if we can make it work better for us, then then all the more power. I mean, th there isn't. I mean, the, the sort of simplistic, uh, let's say, Salafist uh, or you know, literalist understanding of things as well. The Quran is just one. You know, it's it has an obvious meaning. That, and whatever it says, it is right. And that's that's as far as it goes. That's a, but even that is an interpretation. I mean, we forget. So we're always right. inevitably. And um, and to, to some of the things that you um, were mentioning earlier on in, in our discussion today um, about uh, the situatedness of the ground, the the I'm losing my train of thought here. But uh, I've totally lost my train of thought. Forgive me. Let me go back to something very important you mentioned, like with the accusations you mentioned that here we go, brainwashed scholars, you know, Western educated scholars, feminists again. 
you know, we've heard, we keep getting those kinds of accusations, you know, beyond what you can imagine. And people have the reason to raise those doubts. I have the reason to raise this doubt, whether I'm doing what I'm, I criticize the medieval scholars for doing. They applied their knowledge to the text, right? Are we doing that or not? And therefore, I see, I see it as the, the, the most safe route is to follow the text, to allow the text to speak for itself, whether we like what we read in the text or not. And I'm saying this loosely because from my experience dealing with the text very carefully, all projections or uh, uh, patriarchal projections uh, are, are just human projections on the text. The text is free from those uh, kinds of, of, I would say, uh, male center projections or political projections. For example, when it comes to uh, uh, arguing for slavery as a Quranic thing or arguing for Islam as the only religion as a Quranic thing, right? Uh, 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 arguing against others' freedom of belief as, as, as a Quranic thing. Those arguments are not Quranic. Those arguments were shaped, were made, uh, uh, you know, by people who try to process the text. I apply a methodology uh, that I, I refer to or, or the, what, what, what uh, inspires it, what I call the semantic completeness of the Quranic language. Uh, and it's a very strict application of tafsir al-Quran al-Quran, interpreting the Quran by using the Quran, uh, which I don't allow myself you know, in the book, and I have another book, inshallah, coming soon uh, in October with Lexington. Uh, I, I like those guys, so I keep working with them. Um, the, the same methodology, now I lost my train of thought. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the, I, I keep applying this methodology for answers from the Quran to be as objective as we can be as possible, because at the end of the day, with human beings trying to understand the divine. Uh, God doesn't speak personally to any of us, right? When we say, God said, this is what we believe God said or God meant, right? The problems, the gap between the text and our understanding of the text is a real thing, it's there, it's gonna be always there. So how about, if I, uh, uh, you know, uh, set aside my, uh, in, you know, my, my, my personal, uh, my uh, biased, you know, maybe uh, needs, uh, uh, agendas, agendas, desires, requirements, and I listen to the text. How about if I take one word and I try to find it in the rest of the Quran and I come back to it? Maybe, maybe that will set us free from uh, more damage to, to, to the Quran or to any religious text by imposing ourselves as the divine. We're not divine. No one of us is divine. We're just having different attempts to understand the divine. And maybe by appealing to the, to the Quran, reading the Quran from within the Quran, maybe we'll have a better chance uh, and, and less set of problems. For sure, I would say less set of problems. Well, uh, what you've um, sort of outlined that sort of um, ethic um, as far as 
our reading of the Quran, our interpretation of the Quran is, it strikes me as, um, I mean, eminently intelligent and, and fair and, and also very humble. Like I, I, what I appreciate is, is if we, if we maintain it, not a degree, but we have to maintain degrees of humility. Yeah. I mean, always to the best of our ability, but especially when we're engaging with a text, which as Muslims we believe is, is literally the, uh, God's speech itself, then we, we must always be humble and say, this is the best that we can do. And, and, and I think this is in keeping, uh, what you're saying is, is, is eminently, um, strikes me as eminently humble and, and true to the Islamic ethos. And, and that very attitude of humility um, if we apply it through history, like if, if neo-traditionalists are saying, well, this is like, say, the Hamza Yusufs of the world, right? They'll say, well, all this stuff has been discussed already. Really? You know, all this stuff has been discussed. Nothing new needs to be discussed. Mm -hmm. That sort of attitude. I mentioned him just because, uh, I mean, he's, you know, a big representative of, let's say, the neo-traditionalist school. Um, you know, th then that's that's not being humble anymore as far as, you know, would the scholars that we cite as these timeless examples, I, the way you put it earlier, which I, I thought was very profound, um, that a lot of these imams, historically speaking, we've had, we have a tendency, many of us have a tendency of idolizing them. Yeah. Would they themselves have been comfortable with this degree of um, codification of their texts? I mean, I would, I would, uh, argue not certainly not um and uh, you know in keeping with my kind of attitude for what it's worth i mean there's a complex sort of i have a complex personal history as to why this has come about but i really believe part, and part of that history uh, which i can mention is two of, i mean throughout my life some of my greatest teachers have been women not not that only and not to say that i haven't had great male teachers but honestly some of the greatest teachers i've had have been women and i really don't think that's accidental mm. i i really believe fundamentally not to be so you know not to you know make some highfalutin claim here this is genuinely my existential kind of belief and feeling that women have something deeply wise and 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 compassionate and 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 humble to offer us uh, as a species, you know, not not least as as, as Muslims, um, and and speaking, uh, continuing in that vein, as it were, about learning from women teachers like yourself. Um, we we have the issue, and we spoke uh, uh, earlier about uh, about Mary and her role in in in, in the Quranic narrative and, and through human history as uh, as a, as as a result. We, you mentioned the example of Queen Sheba and, and the idea, and not just the idea from a Quranic narrative point of view, the reality uh, of having leaders who are women. And could you speak a little bit to, uh, to that, please? Yeah, the Queen of Sheba, uh, I teach women in the Quran for Nebraska University. And uh, every time I teach this course, my students share with me that their favorite character was the Queen of Sheba. And when it comes to her story, you know, the Quran uh, uh, describes the stories, Quranic stories are as Ahsan al-Qasas, the best of stories. And the Quranic stories are the best stories 
not because uh, of, of course there's there's this miraculous ling linguistic style of the Quran, but there's also the the lessons and morals you can learn from this story. So the big lesson out of the the other lessons one can learn from a celebrated queen in the Quran is women's right to public authority positions with no conditions of any kind. Uh, the, 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 uh, the way the Quran introduced the Queen of Sheba uh, with, with a huge respect, uh, her personality as a leader, uh, she's an equal of Prophet Solomon himself. And this is, I find, as a linguistic evidence in the Quran to the full gender egalitarianism for men and women as leaders. In the same chapter, uh, Prophet Solomon describes himself, and we know Prophet Sol Solomon is, uh, and this is chapter 27, uh, Prophet Solomon is, is a mighty king and a mighty prophet in, in the Quran. And he's given powers, he's given wisdom, he's given even supernatural powers. We know of communicating with demons, with jinn, with, with the wind, with animals, with everything. So he praises himself and his family as people who have been given a share of everything. When the hoopoe, you know, the story starts with Solomon in his court, surrounded by his servants, animals, demons, human beings, and the hoopoe, you know, the, the cute bird comes back with the news, something fascinating. I found some, some news for you. There is a queen, and he would describe her the same exact way Solomon describes himself in the Quran as someone who has been given a share of everything, right? a clear gender egalitarian message. Now, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, you see the same exegests when they go interpret the same chapter, the same expression, they would say that, yeah, Solomon was given of, of everything. He was given prophethood, he was given wisdom, he was given leadership qualities, uh, he was given personality. When they, interpret the same imp impression. She was given a share of everything as applied to the Queen of Sheba. Yeah, she was given a throne, soldiers, material stuff, nothing about her personality, nothing about the Queen of Sheba as a leader. Not only as a leader, she's equal to, to, to King Solomon and Prophet Solomon himself. Uh, the only reason uh, the hoopoe was uh, criticizing her is because they were in the habit of worshiping, we know, the sun instead of worshiping God. Even as the story goes, you know, uh, the way she's responding to the letter from Prophet Solomon, the way she's consulting a male counselor, the way she's responding to their offer of, we, we're people of military power, they said, but she resorted instead to her feminine smartness and wisdom and to her experience as a leader. And she said, I'm gonna send him a gift. Let me try this, you know, dip, dip, diplomacy, right? Uh, I'm gonna send him a, a gift. And clearly she was trying to know his intention. Is he a king interested in money, uh, you know, in, in, in gifts in uh, maybe adding properties to his properties or is he, uh, as he's claiming he's preaching for a new religion. He started his letter to her in the name of God. 
and she described his letter as a gracious letter, right? She sensed there's something there. And of course, Prophet Solomon got angry and rejected the, 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 the gift. What you're doing here, right? As she expected. We know that it ended with uh, the Queen of Sheba visiting his palace, his uh, challenging her, performing miracles, and deceiving her. And she ended, she ended by uh, uh, converting or acknowledging monotheism, acknowledging the only God of, of Solomon. Uh, but there's a, another lesson there that what really worked for her is to be deceived by Solomon, probably because she was very clever, very smart, and it was very hard to, to anyone to deceive her. So when he tricked her, you know, with, with working miracles, she acknowledged he must be aided with supernatural powers. The other big lesson, and I can't, you know, leave the story without uh, mentioning as well. We mentioned so far Hassan, Mary, and we mentioned the Queen of Sheba. Uh, the Queen of Sheba uh, and Solomon were speaking about a Jewish lady, right? Solomon is a Jewish prophet. And Mary, you can say she's Christian, or if you want to take Jesus as a Jewish rabbi, you can say she's, she's Jewish as well. So the role models for Muslim women are a Jewish lady and a Christian lady, again, back to the big shared human uh, monotheistic Abrahamic shared legacy that the Quran is celebrating, which, which is, we speak about patriarchy, sometimes narrowing the, also by medieval needs and agendas, narrowing the, the, the uh, uh, Abrahamic mission in the Quran to those who follow Muhammad or the monotheistic religion to those who follow Muhammad as the only Muslims. In the Quran, Muslims are those who follow God and following Muhammad is an option, is an option. Nowhere in the Quran, the Quran comes to cancel uh, uh, the other Abrahamic uh, or belittle the other Abrahamic traditions. Again, this is, this is another topic. We, we, we can't really go there, but this is another lesson that you can learn as well from the two stories, the story of Mary and the story of the Queen of Sheba. Those are role models for Muslim women. Again, it's a very, very powerful uh, stories and very powerful uh, responses from you, which I'm very, very grateful. Thank you, Hassan. No, no, this is uh, very important. Um, you discuss, uh, I think, your very first chapter. We, um, we started by talking about Mary. Um, she appears a little later on in your book. But I think in your first chapter, uh, you discuss the, um, the uh, shall we say, Problematic, historically problematic, verse uh, verse four thirty four. Uh, could you speak a little bit to that, please? Yeah, and probably on my list on questions, I usually get about um, uh, women's issues in Islam and the Quran. I would say this this is on the top of the list. Oh, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah, yes. and for for a sound reason. Of course. Yes. 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 Can really. Well, I, I intentionally. I'm sorry. To, I intentionally didn't want to start there because not that I'm not interested in your response, but. I, I think, you know, some of the other issues, yeah. uh, you know, somehow, to yeah. my mind, not to belittle the reality of, of the abuse of the, the misinterpretation of this verse, but I mean, the reality of Mary, the reality of the Queen of Sheba, the, the, the I mean, these, these examples in some ways 
speak for themselves to my mind. Right, right. Right, and I appreciate starting with stories and role models before we get into something very serious as a claim of advocating for domestic violence as a Quranic argument, right? Because uh, it's it's a huge embarrassment. Uh, let's, Let's be frank about it. To keep saying that 434 is really as interpreted uh, provides men with the three correction methods that starts with uh, reproaching women, advising them and wives, and then escalates into uh, uh, withholding sex as a punishment. And third, it can end with physically striking them. Uh, and let me start by saying, Hassan, again, going back to, to what we started our discussion with, are we here projecting our needs or is it the text itself, right? So are we having a, tr- a huge uh, uh, embarrassment with understanding 434 because we don't like it, because it doesn't fit our, 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 our lifestyle? I would say no, because it contradicts the Quran, the rest of the Quran. So the problem with 434 is not that we don't like anymore an argument that wrongs women in marriage, it doesn't fit our lifestyle. No, it, it contradicts the Quran itself. Either Hassan, the rest of the Quran, the rest of the gender egalitarian message of the Quran is wrong, or our, our understanding, the traditional understanding of this verse is wrong. Myself, I had you know a long time reflecting on it. And I think uh, I, I have a reasonable case of the 20 arguments I provide for rethinking 434. Long story short, it has nothing to do with marital context, nothing. It's related to criminal punishments, advertising for three criminal punishments to be decided by the court to punish violators of laws and rules in the community. It has nothing to do with, with marriage. Uh, why do you, uh, Ablar, argue for that? Uh, if we go back to the, um, to the verse itself, you can tell from the verse, from the language of the verse, there is no mention to any marital context. Uh, it depends on time. I can either say it or we can, I can share a slide with the verse itself. You tell me because uh, it's, it's more clear if we go to the, to the text itself. No, please do, yes. <laughs> so I'm, do I'm, I'm muting myself there. I'm, I'm a little slow to, to respond. No, please, please do, yes. Okay, so maybe I try to share my screen. Uh, are you able to share your screen? Wait, do I have to do something? Um, do I- uh, you have wait. to allow me a permission. Ah, yes, yes. Wait, sorry. Let me. How do I do that? Multiple participants. Ah, yes. Sorry. Yes. That you should be allowed. Uh, you should be able to do it now. Yes. Okay. It's going to be only one slide. Cool. I know PowerPoints can be a little bit. No, this is perfect. So you see it now yeah. at your side. Yes. Uh huh. So this is four thirty-four. And here I provide, eventually I replace this uh, uh, translation by my own translation. Uh, I provide this Abdul Halim's translation and I'm not providing it to attack it. 
Uh, I depend on Abdel Halim's translation in, in my uh, research. It's, it's out of the best translations out there, but this is the mainstream understanding of the verse and this is what we have. And by the way, I can't give myself credit as the, the only person or the, the first person who tried to make sense or, or to, to resolve the many issues coming from the traditional understanding of 434. All what I'm saying that to be honest with ourselves or the attempts, uh, you know, there are good intentions, but they're not really uh, Quranic uh, per se. For example, some argue, and I'm, I'm going to give, give, you know, without citing people, forgive me, no, I'm, I'm not going to be saying names. For example, some attempts try to soften the tune of the verse by saying it's light beating, right? It's light beating. It's just beating uh, by using something like miswak, a pen, miswak, or a feather, or something like that. Unfortunately, when you go to the verse, it doesn't say how much the beating takes place, the intensity, how much you repeat it. A very famous line of arguing against the traditional interpretation would say daraba or idrubuhunna, the verb in Arabic, doesn't even mean beating, right? It means to leave them, to ignore them, something like that. Unfortunately, to be uh, very open about it, daraba is, uh, and, and the, the, they draw similarity with the to strike as a root in English. It's not that simple, right? I appreciate the attempt again, because it comes not in the root format, it comes precisely conjugated, like all verbs in Arabic, idribu hunna, in its full conjugation, it's a command due to the conjugation, it's a command given to a group of men to strike an absent group of women, and this is the object. Is, this, is it physical beating or striking? Yes, because to ignore or to leave them will require a proposition, darabahan, right? And we don't have that proposition. At least Leila Bukhtiar, I appreciate her, her attempt to deal with that. She said that a missing proposition won't count. The Prophet Muhammad, if I'm not misunderstanding her anyway, was illiterate anyway. But again, Hassan, again, with capturing myself, not projecting myself on the text, if, allow, if I allow myself to say, hmm, let me solve this problem by saying that a proposition is missing here, an expression is added there. Why to stop with what I like and why not to apply it on all the Quran and eventually change the Quran, right? We can't go there. So it means, it really means physical beating. But the question, what is, what is the subject? What is the subject, right? And, and uh, I'm going to explain my, my interpretation, but going over other attempts as well, a better remedy, a final cure, right, to avoid divorce. Uh, I always tell my students, I, I consider my students as my own kids, if your partner, you know, she doesn't respond to you until you beat her, please divorce her, right? This is not marriage as it's described in the Quran, right? This is not uh, uh, Out of his miracles, uh, loosely translated, he created you for you out of yourselves, uh, spouses, so you have tranquility. And he provided, divinely provided you uh, a care and, and love, right? 
if if your spouse drives you to either withhold sex or beat until they're on the same page, please, uh, by 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 appealing to violence, you're not only hurting others, you're hurting your own spirituality. A man who beats a woman is not a man, let alone a man who beats his own wife. The Quran can never, ever recommend that, right? And I, I should end with that. Even if you deal with daraba, daraba doesn't mean to beat. Okay, how do you deal with holding, with holding sex as a punishment, marital punishment? Is psychological abuse less harmful than physical abuse? Is indicating that you're not attracted to, you, to your wife any better, you know, than beating her? I would say both options, if understood in a marital context, both options are equally bad. So back to the text. Uh, here I, I do this, with, which uh, this is from my class, in fact. Uh, for my students, uh, and I'm so proud of my students, many of them do minor in Arabic studies, so they already read the Arabic and the English. I highlight the same color words in Arabic and the equivalent in English. We start from the beginning, the very first mistake. A rijal is not husbands, a rijal is men. A rijal is men. Their qawamun, and qawama is another discussion as well, but I take it for another conversation, for another full discussion as um, financial responsibility of spending. And Nisa, right? Uh, Nisa is not wives and it's not Azwaj, it's women. So the second, the second uh, uh, conflict, right? So the, the, the relation is not between, or what is coming is not between uh, husbands and wives, it's between men and women. And maybe I can talk a little bit about Qawamu. So Qawama is the financial responsibility, uh, uh, rewardable financial responsibility of spending on female figures in your family. Uh, your wife can be one of them. With what God has given some more than others. And I give credit here to Professor Amina Wadud. Masculine preferred to bad masculine, which means Qawama is usually understood as men are preferred to women, so masculine to feminine. The language says masculine from the subject pronoun to bad. So there is some men prefer to the rest of men who are who are those category or subcategory of men how can you be they're preferred by god right because it's a religious duty and it's rewardable by god and it's open to you it's optional you want to spend that's fine you don't want to spend it's only additional opportunity to get some reward if you you know you know i want to give gifts to, to sisters, aunts, uh, uh, daughters, spend on my wife. Again, it's, it's, it's optional and rewardable. So only the best of men, I would say, Hassan, are the qawamun. They're preferred to the rest of the, of, of the other men and they spend. We move with the verse. Um, righteous wives, right? The third mistake, fasalihat. A salihat is not righteous wife. 
As-Saliha is righteous woman. Anything, a man or a woman can be righteous. In the Quran, as we read in 21, 105 and 72, 11, I'm not gonna be quoting for, for saving some time. I'm gonna just be giving maybe quick references. Human beings and even demons, jinnies, some of them jinn, can be described as salih. So anyone with righteous behavior is salih. So the verse is not describing righteous wives, it's describing righteous women in the community, right? Qanitat, what is qanita? Devout. Is qanita restricted to wives? Again, no. Mary, we know in the Quran, Mary is not the wife of anyone. Uh, it was recommended, it was commanded in the Quran in a 343, be devout to your God. So righteous women are devout. Then we move, hafizat lil ghayb, and they guard uh, what God would have them guard, right? And hafizat lil ghayb bima hafizallah, in their husband's absence. The, the, uh, another mistake, I don't have any husbands here in the, in the Arabic. I have those who guard what God asked to be guarded when unseen. Al-ghayb is unseen. Unseen by who? Unseen by God, right? I don't have a single mention to husbands, but the traditional interpretation is women or righteous wives, they um, obey their husbands even when unseen by their husbands, right? I don't have that that uh, kind of context here. All what I have, they um, observe what needs to be observed, what God asked to be observed when unseen. Another clarification when unseen by God is Allah. Allah is mentioned here. It, it is what God asks to be preserved or uh, uh, be guarded. Um, so, so far, the, the verse described the ideal behavior of women, righteous women in the community. Now it's gonna move on to violators of laws, violators of rulings, and how to respond to that. It says, Those you fear their high-handedness, and nushuz is one of those words that in their um, semantical later development come to be understood as marital disobedience. Essentially, nushuz is marital disobedience. But nushuz here is not marital disobedience. It's high-handedness or disobedience even to the community. So I would say nushuz is only a subcategory of high-handedness or behaving in a way that no one expects you to behave in the community. Uh, to draw, you know, an, an analogy or to compare it to another verse in the Quran, which is 4128, if a woman fears from her husband, nushuz, high-handedness, or i'rad, alienation, then the verse continues. So I argue that here nushuz is uh, the, 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 the general umbrella meaning. It's nushuz marital in shoes only in 4128 because of the context in 4128. Because I have literally a woman fears from her husband. I have the word husband. I don't have that here. 
Another assurance that Nishuz is, uh, uh, in a, as a Quranic term, is general high-handedness, we find in 58.11. If believers, if it's said to you, raise up or stand up, stand up when everyone else are sitting, which means a behavior that can be described as different from everyone else. High-handedness, any behavior that is not considering the rest of the community. And then we have the three correction methods. It starts with fa'idhuhunna. Aidhuhunna, reproach them, advise them, remind them of the teachings of God. And I take, take it probably maybe court warnings, congregation warnings, repeated warnings. We don't know how many times a, a, a criminal can be given warnings until they stop and before the court can escalate to something else. Uh, it escalates into which is understood as leave them in their beds or ignore them in their beds, a metaphoric for withholding sex. Another crime, right? You, you don't communicate with your wife with, by, by withholding sex. Uh, so what can this stand for? Uh, uh, first of all, I, I should say that the metaphoric interpretation of leaving them, and it's not beds, it's bedrooms, I'm going to explain this in, in a minute, uh, it stands for house arrest, arresting them in their bedrooms or in their homes, which used to be one bedroom, right, or the place where uh, they, they live in. Another reason uh, it can never stand for withholding sex, because the metaphoric meaning of leave them in their bedrooms goes against the literal prohibition made in the Quran in 58, one to four to something called al-Rihar. Literal prohibition and the strict prohibition to the heart. And therefore I started Hassan by telling you that the traditional interpretation of 434 contradicts the rest of the Quran. What is the heart? The heart is a pre-Islamic uh, and um, I, I know many of us know already this, but, but I'm explaining for, for those who, who maybe are, are puzzled by, by what is the har. The har goes back to um, a pre-Islamic misogynist punishment in marriage. In marriage, see now we can see from the, where these ideas were coming, reviving pre-Islamic ideas, where a man will punish his wife by saying, I'm not attractive to you anymore. To me, you're like the back of my mother. How can a man and the Quran literally ends the verbal announcement of the intention? A man, if he announces the intention of withholding sex this way, he can't go back to his wife and a husband and a wife until he sits a slave free or he fasts nonstop two months, okay? A very severe punishment, don't even say it. And the bigger question, Hassan, can the Quran recommend withholding sex in 434 and strictly prohibiting even using in a verbal way intimacy as a way to punish your wife? There is a huge contradiction here. And also I mentioned that uh, uh, is bedrooms and not bed. 
it's well known even for beginners in Arabic that this is ism makan, a noun place. And it's driven according to a special formula from the root, like sabaha masbah, to swim, swimming pool. Madja from dajaa, it's a place where you lay down. They took it as metaphoric for bed, but it's literal for house arrest in bedrooms. And now it's, um, it escalates to Udribuhunna, but we, even uh, before going there, and maybe uh, for the sake of time, I'm, I'm going to skip some points. Uh, uh, withholding sex, even, you know, when it comes to human nature. I mean, seriously, uh, men can punish their wives with withholding sex. We all know, except, of course, for some exceptions, that men are more sexually demanding. Women are more emotionally demanding. So I take it as a punishment. If someone will punish someone, women can punish men. You know, to be frank about it by withholding sex, it's, it's, it, can, it can't be the opposite, right? Well, and to, be frank, and to be frank about it, some women do do that. <laughs> Sorry to say. It's very mean when they do that, right? I think but it's I terrible think... <laughs> I'm speaking as a man. Yeah. Right. So it's not effective even, even speaking to basics about the human sexuality. Uh, before leaving to 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 uh, uh, what is the addressee here? Is it husbands? If we only if we go to the preceding verse, which is four twenty eight, it's amani, community of believers. So the whole dialogue is not husbands; it's addressing the community with correction methods. Another assurance comes not only from the. Uh, uh, the, the verse that comes before 434, it comes from uh, 435, the following verse. If you fear a conflict, community between both of them, send an arbitrator from his side and from her side again. And the question, Hassan, if the community of believers is the addressee in uh, 429 and the addressee in 435, why to switch with no single mention of wives, husbands, or marriage to say, no, 434 is addressing husbands with three correction methods to deal with wives. And now beating. If the court, if the congregation, when nothing else works, allows beating, probably I would say this is recommended as a final solution. Now, the fact that we ruled out this option, doesn't make it less Quranic. Because again, it's, it's not up to angry husbands to decide the punishments. It's up to courts, congregations, judges, they decide. I dream of the time, not only we rule you know, away physical punishment, but to the time when, when we won't need prisons in the first place, when warnings can, can work with people. Right, so it's up to the court, and this is another reason that motivates one to think of 434 as addressing criminal punishments, because of the intensity of how many times you can do it, right? Uh, when, right? How many times you repeat warning before you escalate to house arrest? It's up to the court, and it's way more safe when the court decides what to do than when you leave it up to angry husbands 
hey, go correct your wife the way you want. All of them will say, you know, she was teasing me. All of them will say, uh, you know, no offense, not all of them. I mean, people who do that, like I, I take it. I mean, it's common, pretty common, yeah. <laughs> I think it's yeah. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, those who will, yeah. Go ahead, Hassan. No, no, no. I was just going to say, in in a situation where there's already some discord, perhaps, and you know, it, it's come to a point where, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, think I mean, it's too personal. Yeah, I mean, it's too sensitive, too personal to leave it to people to decide. But when you leave something with congregations, with courts, they can say no more beating, right? They can say, we don't need presence anymore. Warning is working for people. They can say, I can give court warning for 10 times, 20 times before we escalate, right? It's And, and the Quran, by the way, is not there, it's especially with legal terms, the Quran switches to a very general language. For example, if you, uh, if you rule people, seek justice. And the bigger question, what is justice, right? Quran is not there to tell you what is justice, right? It's human beings. The Quran, Islam, any religion, is not there to replace the human responsibility of making sense of, of norms, rulings, their own life, right? Dr. Hassan, this is a very, very profound point that you're making, which um, you, you also made earlier, you sort of alluded to this point that, um, that the Quran isn't really interested in clear, uh, dispensations as to what needs to be done right. in sort of as <clears throat> as far as discipline and, and in disciplining people and punishing people it's uh it, it, it's, uh, it's it's to be worked out in in each age right because the the conditions are different in each age the the norms are different in each context uh, let alone in each age um and and everything that you're saying and what uh, this point uh, not least of all so yeah, very let, me stop, let me stop sharing maybe and I, I, I'll get back to you. Uh, so, so yeah, Hassan, as, as, as you mentioned, it's general enough to allow us to have our own voice and our own interpretation, but it's never related to marital context. It can never, with everything I mentioned, mean something like that. Whether as communities we want to go with that or not, it's another it's another issue because again, if you if you rule, seek justice. What is justice? We decide what is justice. Justice 14 centuries ago is not justice like like the meaning we understand by justice today, right? Um, maybe we add to all of these of, of these reasons. If we only and this is now I'm I'm leaving my comfort zone with being only Quranic, even for those who seek guidance from the prophetic behavior, never ever was the prophet accused even by his enemies that he was in the habit of beating any of his wives. And the prophet is, is considered in the Quran as a role model. So either he should be really a role model and people follow him and these are recommendations. So if he was commanded to do that, why not then? Another, another contradiction. The last point maybe I, I can add to this and the full arguments are there in, in the book is why, why is it uh, why is it recommended only to women violators of, of laws, right? And probably one of the reasons is house arrest at that time was more appropriate for women than to be taken somewhere else 
uh, away from their homes. Until today, you know, some, sometimes when, when people are like women sent prisons, they're subject to sexual harassment. Sometimes even when nothing happens, people attack their reputation to the rest of their lives. And it's no secret, Hassan, that in the Quran, priority is given to the elderly, the orphans, women, the less advantaged uh, subcategories in the community. My students laugh when I tell them the Quran spoils women. Literally, the Quran spoils women. They're, they're you know, they're given priority. In the, in That's the amazing. That's an amazing <laughs> perspective. I mean, I love that your students have that feeling that the Quran spoils women, which is a real, really refreshing perspective to, and everything you've, you've described, not, not least your a very profound analysis of uh, verse 434. It's just so refreshing. All of this is very refreshing, very inspiring, um, very wise. Thank you, Hassan. Helpful. And, no, and thank very, you very for, providing, for providing a platform to share. No, no, oh, no, it's really my, it's my pleasure and honor, really. This is um, very important. And everything that you've, you've been describing is, um, and your book, you, you discuss other things in your book, uh, perhaps uh, we don't, uh, we'll, we'll save it for another time, hopefully, but um, it really speaks, as far as I'm concerned, uh, to the necessity, again, uh, of having, um, providing, you know, spaces, like, you know, in my humble way, you know, platform, whatever, who am I, but, uh, like, listening to the, to the, to, to women scholars, to women who are speaking on these issues, uh, because really, I don't think men can come up with these insights. I mean, I'm sure they can if they really tried, but, it, you know, there's something to be said for our sort of unique positionalities. Like white people, to put it this way, like white people, for example, can't really speak to brown people's issues. Like they, they can empathize, but really to be fair, like we need to, to hear from people of color, right? I mean, that's so by the same token, if we want to be fair and if we're not, not going to come across as stupid, like not, we have many of these, you know, I mean, it's terrible examples of, um, it happens all the time, all too often, right? In Muslim contexts, sort of conferences dedicated to, you know, talking about women's uh, issues, not a single woman speaker. Like, are you yeah, that's very sad, yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, that's unbelievable. Are you crazy? <laughs> But this, is, but this is, you know, this is a changing, you know, thanks to, to liberal uh, intellectuals like you, this is a changing now. I, I see a lot of, you know, uh, the, the narrative is changing. It's, it's not like, like before. You know, there is some resistance from time to time. You mentioned, you know, with the, with the like, the beginning of our, our, our conversation, like, uh, people try to double check the agendas where those feminists are, are coming from, right? Is it Western agendas, uh, you know, against our even nationalism? The, everything is, is already said, it's already in the Quran. Why to go back to, to all of that? But, but it's changing now, it's changing. Like I, I see a lot of positivity now in the field. Um, hopefully, well, hopefully. No, no. Well, no, I think it's very important to be hopeful. Always uh, we should be hopeful. And like, you know, I kind of say we should hope for the best and prepare for the worst. You know? <laughs> because yeah. we live yeah. in strange times today. But uh, and one has to always 
always be hopeful because I mean, you know, this is the uh, this is the religious perennial religious spiritual message of all the traditions, right? That we hope in, excuse me, we hope in the the, the mercy of God and uh, that good things will come. But speaking to uh, to people like yourself uh, genuinely gives me hope. And and again, it's really so refreshing. It's 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 spiritually. Uh, nourishing it's uh, spiritually rich it's intellectually rich and uh, i mean more people uh, sh genuinely should know about your work and uh, again i really thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart for, for everything you're doing everything you've been doing and, and, and continue to, uh, continue to do uh, thank you for your time uh, thank you so much hassan it's been a pleasure and an honor to talk to you Oh, and no. uh, great job with your uh, wonderful conversations. You know me, I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm going to continue, you know, being with, with you and everything new you provide. Oh, thank you. Uh, and thank you for your huge contributions, like to all of us. Oh, well, no, that's, uh, that really, thank you. Thank you. That really means a lot. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, uh, it's something, I, I see it as one of my, as it were, my life's projects. So it's, it's an ongoing thing and this will, you know, inshallah, God willing, it will expand as time progresses. It's, inshallah. Uh, but you know, and I see it as uh, it's not my project ultimately. It's it's you know, who am I at the end of the day? It's it's, it's something that has to be done, and there are other people doing this sort of thing. But uh, anyway, I just feel genuinely uh, a profound calling to to sort of address some of these uh, some of these gaps. But yeah. Let's continue to talk, uh, you know, thank you again uh, for your time and uh, um, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you.